Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing congenital cytomegalovirus, or CMV. We're recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We are joined today by Dr. Kaylee Steele, who works in the newborn nursery at Parkland Hospital and is an associate professor of pediatrics at UT Southwestern in the Division of Neonatal Perinatal Medicine. Hello. Hi, Dr. Steele. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So to get started, cytomegalovirus is a member of the herpes viridae family of viruses. It is ubiquitous in humans, with an estimated 60% of the U.S. population having been exposed at some point. In healthy individuals, it might be asymptomatic um, or it can cause upper respiratory symptoms or a flu-like illness. If a pregnant woman um, contracts CMV, however, there is a chance that her infant might be infected. So can you first just talk about CMV infection in general? Yes. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about my favorite congenital infection. And you're probably scratching your head and wondering why. So I feel like CMV and its impact is really underappreciated. So I'm going to take a minute before I start about CMV and just talk to you about rubella. And I want to do that because it was before most of us were practicing. Um, and I believe we can get congenital CMV to where we are with congenital rubella syndrome right now. So the last major rubella epidemic in the United States was in 1965. And infection in pregnant women caused 10,000 miscarriages, 2,000 newborn deaths, 20,000 babies to be born with congenital rubella syndrome. And remember that the classic triad for that is cataracts, cardiac problems, and deafness. So immunization against rubella began in 1969. And now, um, if you fast forward to today, congenital rubella is essentially eliminated. So from 10 years, from 2005 to 15, there were only eight babies reported in the U.S. It's basically case reports every couple of years. Mainly they're imported or associated with travel, but they don't have to be. And if you do the math, that is less than one in four million live births because it's less than one per year. And that's a success story, and I think we can get there with CMV. But to do that, we have to talk about it like we are today. So where are we now? We don't have any um, systematic testing recommendations for testing for pregnant ladies. We don't have systematic recommendations for te- universal testing for infants. There's no required reporting. There's no currently approved vaccine. And I don't want to focus on all the negatives today. We've made a lot of headway. We, in 2004, the National Vaccine Advisory Committee classified work on CMV vaccine as a top priority. That was based on that story that I just told you about rubella. The disease burden of congenital CMV today is as high as the disease burden was from congenital rubella. And we we have made some progress. Vaccine work is underway. Um, we have a treatment for fetuses that shows promise. It's um, still... It, uh, not recommended universally, but it is available, and um, many high-risk newborns are screened. We have treatment for infants that have serious symptoms, either during the pregnancy or after birth. And so, so today, I really hope to convince you that CMV is worth your attention. 
in particular, vaccine before people become pregnant and universal screening of newborns are goals that I hope to see achieved in my career. Okay, so now to answer your question. So you want me to address CMV in general. So CMV is acquired from contact with infected bodily fluids like saliva, urine, genital secretions, breast milk, but also blood and organs. Um, and this person that has the infected bodily fluid could be symptomatic or asymptomatic. So your first infection is called a primary infection. And after that primary infection, CMV persists in your body in your cells, in your tissues, um, and it becomes latent. And you can have another infection. Those are called non-primary infections. They're either reinfection with a different strain or you can reactivate your same strain. So congenital CMV infection comes from intrauterine transmission from the mom to the baby across the placenta. And there's also perinatal transmission and that's from exposure to infected secretions at birth or from breastfeeding. And those have different outcomes. So most infections with CMV, both primary and non-primary, so that would be like your first infection or non-primary, either reactivation or reinfection with another strain, they're asymptomatic, especially in immunocompetent hosts. So we've all seen in school, we tend to think of the life-threatening complications in patients with a compromised immune system, like maybe in the setting of AIDS or transplant recipients. But the highest disease burden from CMV is actually from congenital infection. And that's why I'm talking about it with you today. So it's just like congenital Bella, that picture. We're going to go over the numbers. So lots of people are working on this. And one of them is Michael Cannon from the um, National Center of Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities at the CDC. And he looked around the world at studies of CMV seroprevalence. So you already mentioned that you know, 50 to 60% of the population in the United States has been exposed. And that holds true for women of childbearing age. And even closer to home in Texas, 40% of women of childbearing age have been exposed to CMV. So as you could imagine, seroprevalence increases with age. And that makes sense because it's um, due to our cumulative past exposure. And there are some things that put you at risk. So if you're non-white, you are... 20 to 30 percent higher seroprevalence. If you are a low socioeconomic group, you're higher. Women tend to be higher than men in most studies. And these seem to be related to our childbearing practices, like child rearing practices, breastfeeding, sexual practices. But the variations in seroprevalence can't be explained just by um, poverty and, um, uh, you know, youth and uh, crowding, because some places that are developed that don't have extreme poverty um, and have high education, they have high steer problems. And Japan would be one example. So I kind of want to turn these numbers backwards. So the important issue that you told me that 60% have been exposed, well, that means that a substantial percentage, a huge amount, just in the United States alone, half the women of reproductive age are CMV seronegative. And that's not good. This translates into being at high risk for primary CMV infection during pregnancy, which is a time of relative immunocompromise, and therefore at higher risk of giving birth to a baby who will suffer from CMV-related disability. So if you're not immune when you're pregnant, you can acquire primary infection during pregnancy, and babies born to mothers with primary infection are at much greater risk of having long-term disabilities. 
Okay. So that was a really great introduction um, and background. So I really appreciate that context. So that was prevalence of um, CMV in general. What about congenital CMV? How common is that these days? Okay. So um, in babies, in the United States, we don't have universal um, newborn screening. And remember, it's not a reportable illness, unlike HIV or syphilis. So our best estimates are coming from centers in the United States that are actively researching this. And that would be places like Houston, Birmingham, Salt Lake City. There's a number of them. And then for special populations, like at Parkland, we have a, you know 85% Hispanic population delivering. And so for those numbers, we would have to look around the world, like in Mexico. Uh, so our best estimate is that CMV occurs in 1 in 100 to 1 in 200 live births. So that would be higher in African-Americans, lower in Hispanics. Um, and it could be as low as a half, like, a, well, 1 in 100 to 1 in 200 is going to suffice for our conversation today. So I want to pause and I'm going to repeat myself. So 1 in 100 to 1 in 200 means that CMV is common than all more common than all the torch infections added together. Okay, so bear with me. I'm going to do a little math, and I'm going to overestimate the torch infections just to make my point. I'm going to go on the low end of the range, and I'm, I mean, the high end of that range, and I'm going to go on the low end of CMV infection. Okay, so let's say that CMV is one in 200. So that makes um, 500 per 100,000. We're going to do it like this because we're going to talk about toxos which is one in 10,000, that makes um, 10 per 100,000. We're gonna add these all up. Rubella, we already said was case reports. HIV is between 0.2 to five per 100,000 higher. If you're black, that'd be 10 times higher than if you're white. And so that's gonna be five per 100,000. Herpes would be one in 2,000 to one in 3,000. That's 30 per 100,000. Syphilis, which we're is on the rise, um, is 11 per 100,000. And even, let's just include groupie streps. So that would be all the torch, the torch infections plus groupie streps. So that's about 0.25 per 1,000 live births. That's going to be 25 per 100,000. So if you add all those up, Toxo 10, HIV 5, herpes 30, syphilis 11, groupie strep 25, all per 100,000, that gives us 75 per 100,000. And we said that CMV, even going on the low end, is 500 per 100,000. So that's much higher, right? So that's why I say that it's important that we all think about and know about CMV so that we can impact this and make a difference like we have with Isabella. So the worst part of this story and all of these numbers is that women are not aware of CMV despite this very heavy burden that we just talked about. It's so similar to the way that pediatricians don't always discuss breastfeeding. Not all OBs discuss um, CMV with mother. And I think that's because we don't have a vaccine. We don't have a, a national recommendation for screening. Um, the treatment is still considered, uh, you know, experimental, not recommended in all cases. And it feels like there's not much that we can do about But that's not the case. There are things that have been proven to work to decrease the burden of congenital CMV. If OBs were to discuss it with mom, what kind of things could they recommend to reduce the okay, risk? Okay, so um, on the CDC website, a great handout, and it all has to do with reducing um, contact and exposure to secretions. So 
Um, hand washing, particularly like after you diaper, feed, bathe, if you wipe someone's snotty nose, if you handle a baby's toys, which would have been mouthed, right? That we should not share cups, plates, utensils, toothbrushes. Like don't drink after your child. Don't don't clean up their plate and take the few bites of the chicken nugget that's sitting there. Don't kiss them on or near the mouth. Don't share like towels and washcloths. And then to clean the toys, countertops, and other surfaces that would come in contact with urine or saliva till the child is about six years old. Um, and these sound like it would be very difficult. Like if you have a child, so you say, great, I can do that for my first baby. I'm not around another child, um, uh, you know, that's in my own home. And you feel like, you know, implementing these might make it make your child feel like you're not being warm and loving but I think that there are ways to tackle this where the child wouldn't even know so you know you kiss them on the top of the head or on the ear or you know in their neck and not right on the lips um and the other things are going to be kind of invisible so maybe they ask for a drink of your you know milk or lemonade or whatever whatever you're having and you hand them a cup and you just don't drink it anymore so they don't really notice um and it's been shown that um uh, a couple of things have shown us that these work. One is that um, in daycare centers, um, daycare workers have a much higher um, CMB seroprevalence than healthcare workers do, despite both being exposed. And that's because in healthcare, we are, you know, can wear gloves, we are in a setting where we can wash our hands frequently, and we're not in contact with young children's secretions. Um, and the other thing that uh, tells us that, that this works is that when a mother who is contemplating pregnancy is checked um, and known to be negative and she um, has a child that's known to be positive and she implements these strategies, she can markedly reduce her um, conversion rate. Hmm. Okay, so that's good for us to know um, for counseling. But again, it would be the OBs who would be... Um hopefully responsible for counseling those moms. Um, question for you. You mentioned this earlier. So we know that for some pathogens like herpes, there's a significant difference in risk to the fetus, whether the maternal infection is primary or non-primary or recurrent. Um, does this also hold true for CMV? Okay. Yes, it does. Okay. So we're going to talk just a minute about the red flags in the pregnant woman. So remember that most primary infections in all women, but in pregnant women also, are asymptomatic. So they're not going to, you know, they're going to go and detect it. We're not going to be able to detect them. Now, sometimes they'll have flu-like symptoms like fever, fatigue, headache. And if it's not caused by another identifiable infection, those women should be offered serologic testing. Risk factors for um, a, a primary infection are young moms, meaning less than 15, being non-white, low socioeconomic um, status, childcare workers who have uh, 11% seroconversion rate in the first year, so quite high, people who have young children in the home. And again, notice how healthcare workers aren't on this list. Um, and that's because we're able to um, pay careful attention to our infection prevention. So during pregnancy, mom's immune status is really important, as is the timing of her infection. So those two things determine the rate of transmission and the chances that the baby are going to have sequela. Okay, so the highest rate of transmission from the mother to the baby occurs when the mother has a primary infection. 
So just like all the other numbers, I've told you there's a range. So I'm just going to settle on what most people agree. Um, so whether it's a slightly bit higher or lower, it's still a significant burden. So there's in this setting, when mom has a primary infection, there's about a 30 to 40% chance of vertical transmission versus 1 to 2% with non-primary infection. So to, t- to make matters even worse, the infant born after that primary infection is much more likely to have severe long-term sequela to be symptomatic. So women who are seropositive before birth are 70% less likely to give birth to an infant with CMV infection. And yet, and this part gets confusing, three quarters of all infants with congenital CMV infection are born to mothers with non-primary infection. And that's because they can be asymptomatic. They could still have CMV, but be asymptomatic. And that is true around the world. So the numbers that I told you that CMV is one in 100 to one in 200 live births, that's around the world. Whether you live in a country with 100% seroprevalence of, in women of childbearing age or whether you live in a country where it's much lower, say 50%. Okay, so now let's talk about the timing during pregnancy when you have your infection. So if you compare women who are infected in the latter half of pregnancy with the women who, are, who develop primary CMV in the first trimester, um, so CMB in the first trimester, you're much more likely to deliver a baby who has sensory neuro hearing loss, like up to 40% versus like two or so percent um, for in the latter half. And other CNS sequela, like bad things, mental retardation, cerebral palsy, seizures. Um, so 30% versus much lower, you know, perhaps 10 or 15%. So in this what this whole what we've just talked about the timing of infection and the um, the pregnancy pre-pregnancy immune status this makes vaccine development very problematic because it means that when having had an infection isn't protected against reactivating your own or having another infection and we already talked about how CMB infection around the world is one in a hundred live births on average so that's why we're going to have to find other ways in addition to the vaccine. So for a baby, you can find this fetal infection on Sono. And these abnormalities include, you know, echogenic bowel, like growth retardation, um, microcephaly, ventricular megaly, um, periventricular calcifications in the brain. The placenta can be thickened. The baby can have high drops. And the amniotic fluid volume can be abnormal. Unfortunately, none of these are specific for CMV, and so there could be other causes. And also, only 15% of the infected fetuses will have these ultrasound abnormalities. But if you do have the abnormalities and you have a mother with a confirmed you know, primary infection, then it's strongly suggestive of infection. So if we do have an infant who has congenital CMV, what are some signs we might see? Okay, so... Some people like to group them into signs and symptoms that are temporary and those that are permanent. So if you think about it, the virus is infecting the baby and in the bone marrow and liver. And so then the baby's going to have anemia and that's going to cause, like we talked about, the hydrox, but also the red blood cell production is going to try to move to other sites. The baby's trying to compensate. So that's going to lead to extramedullary hematopoiesis, which is where the baby is making red blood cells out of the bone marrow. So that can lead to the blueberry muffin rash, where they 
have little sites of red blood cell production in the skin. So it looks like the light color of the muffin with the darker color of the blueberries, like a little spongy mass there. And the um, liver can be big. The spleen can be big. Baby can have um, jaundice, particularly with direct um, hyperbilirubinia. Um, they can have domicidopenia, and that's going to lead to tiny little bruises. So petechiae or bigger ones, purpura, that don't blanch from that domicidopenia. They can have involvement in you know, many organ systems, so pneumonitis, like infection in the um, lungs, in the intestines, enteritis, hepatitis in the liver. And they can um, be poorly grown, so they can be less than the 10th percentile um, for their weight. They can have um, in their uh, pondral index or um, BMI can be abnormal. They can have seizures. So the more permanent um, sequela, and uh, some of these can persist, like the growth retardation and everything, but the more permanent sequela are going to be microcephaly with the FOC or the head circumference less than the 10th percentile, vision loss from infection eye, chorioretinitis, hearing loss, which is mainly sensory neural, and they can have those intracerebral calcifications, which would be, again, periventriculars versus, like with toxo, where you'd have them diffuse, um, you know, uh, mental retardation, motor disabilities like cerebral palsy, seizures, and then member death is going to occur in, you know, between 3 and 10% of all infants with symptomatic disease. And overall, about um, between 0.3 and 1% of all infants with CMB. But I just want to spend a minute on hearing loss because that's really the main sequela um, in CMB. So CMB is the leading non-genetic cause of hearing loss of children in the United States. So remember, hearing loss in babies happens between 1 to 3 per 1,000 live births, okay? And if you fast forward to when they're going to preschool, it's higher, 3 to 5 per 1,000 live births. So CMV alone accounts for 20% of all that hearing loss. That's a huge proportion at birth. And by the time the kids are in that preschool range, by the time they're 4 years old, it's a quarter, 25% of all childhood hearing loss is from CMV. And sensory neural hearing loss is the most common sequela after congenital CMB. It occurs in perhaps up to 50% of symptomatic. And even more alarming is that it can occur in 15% of babies that are otherwise asymptomatic, okay? Um, so you think, well, we do newborn hearing screening, like universal newborn hearing screening since the late 90s, so that's no big deal. We're going to catch it. So unfortunately... Um, many babies who have who are going to develop hearing loss, so that 50% of symptomatic and the 15% in asymptomatic groups, many of them don't have it at birth. Perhaps 55 or half of the symptomatic babies that are going to have hearing loss don't have it yet when we screen them for the first time. And maybe even three-quarters, 75% of asymptomatic babies don't have it when we screen that first time. And unfortunately... Um, that 65% of the hearing loss deteriorates over time. So it's not just like you don't have it and then you get it and it stays stable. It gets worse. And so we have to develop monitoring um, systems for hearing loss. So it's not enough just to evaluate at birth. We have to do so in an ongoing way. Is the sensory neural hearing loss typically unilateral or bilateral? So it can be either. Okay. And question for you, actually. So if we do not catch the congenital CMV um, when babies are first born, 
and then the child develops delayed onset hearing loss, how are we able to determine whether that's because of congenital CMV? So that can be problematic. So then you require like an extensive search. Well, first of all, you might find some evidence for congenital CMV infection. Maybe you have those calcifications like I was talking about, something that would help you know that it was CMV. Maybe it was, you know, classic, um, you know, they could go back and maybe there was something um, on prenatal sono. And we've looked back in the setting of maternal HIV and um, screening CMV Um, in the setting of an infant who does have hearing loss. And um, often as clinicians, we don't think of CMV. So maybe there was mild thrombocytopenia with platelets less than 150. Maybe there was a palpable spleen. Maybe there was microcephaly, but perhaps mom also had hypertension. So subtle things, um, because remember, 90% of babies are going to be asymptomatic. So these subtle things, not the obvious baby that has, you know, a five centimeter spleen and a seven centimeter liver and tiny microcephaly. But um, so we can look back and see that there were some subtle clues after birth, like maybe they had a CPC for something else, low temperature, and there were there was thrombocytopenia. Um, unfortunately, it can be difficult um, to confirm if you don't do so within the first two to three weeks after birth, uh, but not impossible. We could rule out everything else. And, you know, check mom, check baby with antibody testing. Mm-hmm. But ideally, we would um, confirm within two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. So let's get into, you mentioned some signs and symptoms. Um, so when you're rounding on your babies in the nursery, which babies do you decide to screen for CMV? Okay, so um, we talked about what they look like when they have infection during the pregnancy. And um, so who would I screen? So let's first think about mom. So if mom has HIV, right? We should check for CMV um, because co-infection would be much worse for the baby. Um, And um, also the mom would have, you know, that would be a period that could be, if she were untreated and everything, a time of immunocompromise. Um, So higher risk of transmission. Um, And then also the risk factors that put her, you know, gave her HIV would also um, be some of the same for the um, CMV acquisition. If mom has a known or symmetric, suspected CMV infection during pregnancy, whether it's primary or non-primary, maybe she had symptoms, maybe she had the flu, but it wasn't flu season, you know, um, or maybe uh, she um, had screening, maybe she was a healthcare worker and particularly worried, so she was known to be negative and became positive, maybe she had an abnormality on her sinus, so all of those babies would need to be screened. Um, Okay, so also any infant who has microcephaly, so FOC less than the 10th percentile, um, growth retardation, um, what, what do you like to use, the Pondrodex or the um, BMI? Uh, a palpable spleen in the first day along with the liver. So liver, you know, down a couple of centimeters and a spleen tip that goes away. I would let that slide, but if I can still feel it the next day or the day of discharge, then I would um, check CMB. Thrombocytopenia, um, in other, we talked about maternal risk factors, um, and then also an infant who doesn't pass the hearing screen, and that would be according to the Joint um, Committee on Infant Hearing Recommendations. Okay, so how are we going to screen? So uh, we're going to do PCR of the urine or saliva, and either one is fine. You do not have to confirm that, one with the other or with a culture, and that has 97% sensitivity and specificity. And we're going to need to do that, like we said, within two to three weeks. So 
we've talked all about CMV already uh, this morning, and um, you might be thinking, well, why don't we do a universal newborn uh, screening? So the trouble, that's been looked at. There was a seven-center study looking at that. There's great interest. Um, I would be in support of that. I, I um, suspect that that will come along in my career. Um, but the PCR of the blood, so what do we already collect in babies? That dried blood spots. So the PCR doesn't work well. It has low sensitivity, so a high false negative rate. Um, and these days, we don't need to do culture unless you happen to live in a place where PCR is not available and then culture of the urine or of the saliva. Uh, that was a gold standard for a very long time. And that is, um, you know, obviously uh, you could find CMB that way. Antibody testing is not on our list. Um, remember, IgG crosses the placenta from the, um, you know, mom to the baby. Um, and so that can, you know, if mom ha- has had CMB, um, either during the pregnancy or before, um, then that would be positive baby. So that's not going to help us because maybe she didn't reactivate or get reinfected. Um, and then IgM has low specificity, so false positives. Now, just because we are doing this um, podcast distance, I just want to speak for a second about when do you have to make special modifications like with COVID right now. So for a while with COVID, even though our goal is to do the newborn screening and the hearing screening for every baby in the hospital, there might become there might be a situation where you aren't able to do that. So then you're going to have to think about, well, if the baby in the hospital, a normal baby with no symptoms, didn't pass a hearing screen, then many places do, in that high-risk setting, uh, recommend and perform a CMV um, PCR. So if you can't do the screen, what should we do? Should we do the PCR on all those babies? It's going to depend on how common COVID is. Should you not do the PCR, if you can't do the hearing screen, should you wait mostly? Those babies would be seen back at a month, and then it would be too late outside, outside of that time frame of two to three weeks. But it, So there's different ways to tackle it. You could screen every baby who you can't do the hearing screen on for CMB, or you could wait till the month. And um, if they were negative, well, that helps you. If they're positive, you're going to have to go back and look carefully. We're stuck in what you were asking me about earlier. Do they or do they not um, have congenital CMB? Did they get this from transplacental passage or did it come from um, exposure to secretions at birth or breastfeeding, which the latter two would have no symptoms in a well-term baby? Okay. If an infant is found to have congenital CMV, what are the next steps while the baby is still inpatient? Okay, so unless the infant is critically ill, nothing needs to be done inpatient. So we certainly don't need to dis- delay discharge in an asymptomatic infant. Um, you know, if the baby is ill enough to be in the ICU, um, that, you know, they would require treatment for, you know, if they had pneumonitis or, um, you know, hepatitis or uh, any enteritis, any of those symptoms. But in the past, in the not so distant past, um, I would say in the last, Several years, certainly less than five years, culture was used of, of the urine or the saliva to diagnose infants. So most babies uh, that were mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic that were delivered and um, cared for in the newborn nursery would be discharged before the results would be available. And many um, centers sent their testing to a few centers in the United States, like Salt Lake City would be a common place where CMB culture was sent. So, but if an infant were symptomatic, then I would look at getting a head ultrasound, looking for those intracranial calcifications, 
SGBC with DIF, for looking for anemia, um, you know, abdominocytopenia, neutropenia. Some of these are from the infection with the virus in utero, or um, some of them are looking to um, at what some of the common side effects that the medications can cause in case a baby ends up being treated. A liver function test, um, then an eye exam, but most ophthalmologists um, have all their equipment and prefer to do that in the clinic or the office. So if the infant's critically ill, you would want to um, talk to pediatric infectious diseases and talk about treatment options, um, whether they were very sick, like with IV, gancyclovir, oral valve gancyclovir. Um, and if they're CMV positive and they pass their hearing screen, then we would want to rescreen them at, um, at by three months of age and then also at least every 12 months until three years or so or even sooner, depending on the clinical situation. Um, as we know that the hearing loss can come after birth or it can worsen if it's already present. And then what treatment do we have for babies who are found to be symptomatic? Okay, so treatment started with IV, and it started in symptomatic infants who were in that high group for developing, um, you know, a cerebral palsy, um, and so they already had CNS involvement. So, and it was six weeks of IV gancyclovir uh, versus no treatment, and it was shown to halt the worsening of hearing loss because these babies were already symptomatic. And the studies went on, and now um, the recommendation is that a, a symptomatic infant um, would be offered six months of oral valve gancyclovir. Um, and that's because what we're trying to really impact here is the childhood deafness because remember CMV accounts for 25% of all childhood deafness. So if we can halt the worsening or um, prevent it from occurring, um, that would make a big impact. Um, so the so currently a symptomatic um, infant with CMV and that now these days doesn't have to include CNS symptoms. Um, they show improved audiologic and neurodevelopment outcomes when they're given Valgan, that, the oral. And that the dose is 16 milligrams per kilogram per dose, um, BID, for six months. Now, 20% of them develop neutropenia. And that was seen with the IV medication, too. And uh, some of those babies have to have a reduction or um, to have their treatment um, halted. Um, and it can be restarted when that, uh, because, you know, neutropenia is, we have to weigh the risk versus the benefits. Um, so if the baby needs IV medication, if they can't tolerate PL, like maybe they have necrotizing arthritis, um, then we could treat them um, with six milligrams per kilogram per dose. Um, and they have a higher a transient neutropenia, about two-thirds of them. So you monitor that with ANC, you know, weekly for six weeks and then at eight weeks and then monthly and then every other month. So we want to treat right now uh, a child, an infant with congenital CMV infection that has moderate to severe symptoms. And we need to be able to start it within one month of birth. Um, in, in, if it's a preterm infant that acquired CMV, either transfusionally or even from secretions, at birth or breast milk or transfusion, we could treat those babies um, also. And that you might treat for a couple of weeks IV and then see if they're improving and then perhaps a couple weeks more. 
And then once we discharge these babies, what outpatient referrals will they need? Okay. So um, because see, uh, hearing loss is the number one um, sequela, we're going to um, work together with audiology. So we're going to follow the Joint Committee on Infant Hearing Recommendations. They were last updated this last summer in 2019. And they really stress that CMV has a much larger impact than previously recognized on hearing loss in childhood. So we're going to screen all infants at birth. Um, we use universal newborn hearing screening and then rescreen uh, infant who's CMV positive by three months and at a minimum 12 months or sooner. We talked about ophthalmology can evaluate, um, you know, in the period after birth and then they will follow along. Um, and um, the reason that we are focused on the hearing and visual input is that if the child does have neurodevelopmental delay, obviously um, correcting any uh, hearing loss or visual loss is going to be really important to help the child, you know, reach their optimal developmental potential. Um, okay, so just one more word about um, hearing loss and the importance. So remember, before we had universal newborn hearing screening, so that would have been like the late 90s, the average age of detection of a child with hearing loss was two and a half years. And it didn't matter who they lived with, a pediatrician, because remember, you will progress the first notion, really, that you have are dealing with hearing loss in your baby is going to be when they don't have a word. So that's going to be, you know, around about a year. Um, and then there was some delay. So the average um, age of diagnosis when there wasn't universal newborn hearing screening was two and a half years. And it was a tragedy because the average reading ability of a child who had a normal intellect diagnosed during that period. So they're graduating from high school and they're normal intellectually. They just don't hear. Um, their average reading ability was fifth grade. And that really limits the jobs that they can have, the um, partners that they will meet and marry, um, and it really negatively impacts their life. So that audiology um, input in is going to be really important for us. Um, so we're also going to want to refer to ECI um, and the early childhood intervention, the federally uh, mandated program that's run by the states um, to help us with, um, you know, intervention for the hearing loss, whatever services in the home and then in the school. And then the pediatric infectious disease clinic. Um, and if we haven't already gotten the head ultrasound, the labs, um, we have that arranged. So for us, our pediatric infectious disease clinic at Children's Ad B, Dr. Amanda Evans has that um, has a congenital infection clinic um, with Viper Z-Ray and um, among others, um, and they um, will help us manage these babies and follow them. Um, and they will follow the Texas Early Hearing Detection Intervention, the one-month, three-month, six-month goals. So screening by month, confirming by three months, um, including referral to ECI and intervening by six months um, to include all the ECI and communication services. And they'll help us with our treatment options. And then you did touch on this um, earlier, but what is the long-term prognosis for these babies? Okay, so if we're going to talk about um, that the CMV occurs in 1 in 100 to 1 in 200 live births. Um, each year, that's going to be about 20 to 40,000 infants born with congenital CMV infection. If we said the death rate was between 3 to 10% in symptomatic 
infants, but 1% of all infections, that's going to be about 200 to 400 deaths per year in the United States. And if you think about hearing loss, in it's occurring in, you know, up to 40% of symptomatic babies and up to 15% of asymptomatic, that's, and that's not even included the CNS sequela, the visual loss, the cerebral palsy, um, that's 8,000 babies born a year in the United States with permanent disability um, from CMV. And the cost, the annual cost just directly for caring those, for those babies is estimated to be between one to $2 billion. Remember, we can make a difference if we, we have a better prognosis if infection occurs after maternal non-primary. We have a better, you know, non-primary infection. We have a better prognosis um, for the baby if it's an asymptomatic infection. We have better prognosis if moms are treated in a fetus who is already symptomatic with IVIG. We have better prognosis if the baby can be treated with um, cyclovir. And remember that 90% of the babies are asymptomatic, so they're not going to be in the ICU. I put that in quotes, in air quotes that you can't see on a podcast, but um, up to 10 to 15% of them can have hearing loss. And to be very careful about the spleen and the mild thrombocytopenia and the FOC that's just below the 10th percentile. And then since we went into CMV, um, congenital CMV, can you briefly talk to us about postnatal CMV? You mentioned it could be transmitted um, during the birth process and by breastfeeding. Yes. Okay. So in a well-term baby that is exposed to CMV just from genital secretions at birth or breastfeeding, there are felt to be no symptoms. Um, but the same is not true for a preterm baby. So a preterm, very low birth weight baby, so less than 1,500 grams, less than 32 weeks, can be symptomatic. Um, and so that baby, or, you know, or if the baby um, got um, a blood transfusion, um, you know, they, uh, if in a symptomatic setting, they would be treated. In the well-term baby, from breastfeeding or the, the secretions from the mom around the time of birth, that is what contributes in large part to our um, seroprevalence. So, um, you know, after the babies are born, you know, one in 100 to one in 200, well, then we're going to work our way up to, in some populations where 100% of people, you know, have been exposed to CMV. And that's how we get it is from um, secretions from mom, breastfeeding, um, you know, uh, depending on what our childcare setting is and our home situation, and then our sexual practices. Hey, Dr. Steele, thank you so much for um, joining us today, for taking the time out of your busy schedule um, to have this discussion with me. To end today's episode, do you have any advice for our listeners while they're taking care of newborns? Yes, I want to thank you for having me. And then I want to um, remind people to think about how common congenital CMV infection is. And even if you forget all the numbers, just to think it is more common and all the torch infections hands down added together and, you know, uh, by factors. <laughs> and so think of CMV, think of screening for it in your patients when they have risk factors um, or if they're clinical signs or symptoms. And then on a personal level, remember that we can talk about it with our patients and that healthcare workers, unlike daycare workers, don't have a higher rate of ser- seroconversion. Um, and so, you know, when you're thinking about a pregnancy, 
um, it's been shown that if you are known to be negative and you have a positive child and you're highly motivated to reduce your seroconversion with these hygiene recommendations that we talked about from the CDC, that you can make a difference um, while we're waiting for vaccine development. Dr. Steele, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Oh, do you want to talk about the CMV month? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that was a thing. That is pretty dorky. Did you know that National CMV Month is in June? <laughs> I did not know that. That is good to know. <laughs> yes. And also, I mean, my favorite thing is this graphic that, um, you know, CMV in the U.S. and worldwide is the most frequent but under-recognized cause hmm. of neurologic damage. I mean, it's more than like fetal alcohol, Down syndrome, like everything. We talked about the infectious, but it's just amazing the impact and how somehow that I don't feel like that's conveyed to us well. Because we're not, if you don't look, you don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.